You are listening to highlights of an episode of The Creative Process. To hear the full interview or to learn more about the Creative Process projects, please visit www.creativeprocess.info. I was, for the last four years before my retirement, director of a museum, the Musée des Arts et Métiers in Paris. It is the third oldest museum in France after Le Louvre and the Museum of Natural History. It's entirely dedicated to the history of technologies, uh, the history of science, the history of major discoveries, mainly in the technological industrial domains. So I thought that I had a unique opportunity to combine my experience as a teacher and social scientist with a museum which was in need, so I thought, uh, of a deep revamping or a deep new breath. Um, I wanted to uh, rejuvenate that museum with new projects and I very much wanted to make projects in arts and sciences. It's almost a genre in itself, that is, you invite artists in residence you invite them to uh, discover your museums, to discover your uh, depot, a town where we actually had uh, 80,000 objects, as opposed to the current exhibition, which is uh, 3,000. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's always a proportion. Most museums, yes. but our uh, museum is especially rich mm-hmm. with objects you never see. So the idea was to invite artists and invite them to uh, suggest temporary exhibitions which would combine their vision mm-hmm. with the history of the object that were on display. And out of that experience, uh, I wrote uh, that uh, short book, which is titled in French, Réinventer les musées, question mark, Reinventing Museum. Question Can you mark. do it? It's a big question. So that was my challenge. My idea, and I might tell you a, a few of those rituals if you're interested. Oh, yes, I am. But my idea was to trigger the imagination of museum curators, uh, museum mediators, as we call them, that is, people who are in charge of the public in whatever capacity, either to guide them around or to have activities with them, especially with, with kids or specific yes. groups, uh, and say, look, when you think about it, it is quite possible to do things differently with museums. When I was director, I tried to do it, but that was difficult. I have to say that I left pretty frustrated because I had not been able to go as far as I wanted to go because there is some kind of an inner resistance, Mm -hmm. resistance of habits, resistance of, for security reasons, Mm -hmm. or money reasons. But you might say, imagination is not in power in museums. And my book is, in a sense, a call for more imaginative or more daring museums. 
there is now a big debate within the International Council of Museums, which is some kind of a huge network of museums, about 30,000 museums around the world are members mm. of ECOM. Uh, it's a UNESCO-supported um, network. And in Tokyo last September, there was a very heavy debate between those who wanted to maintain a definition of the museum which was focused on the conservation of objects, their display, and the pleasure taken from looking at them. It's a short, beautifully crafted definition which has lasted for about 50 years now. But opposite to that definition, there was a new definition offered by Scandinavian countries, by African countries, by mm. Latin American countries, which said, look, a museum cannot just be defined by European countries anymore. Mm. We must debate within a world wide open uh, network like ECOM, we should consider the museum as a very inclusive institution, open to very many publics, not just the people who have the cultural uh, or educational capital to be able to admire a painting or whatever, but people have to be invited to be much more actively involved in the activities of the museum. It should be a forum for many segments of the populations or the communities, etc., etc. That is a much more socially or politically oriented definition of the museum. My idea was to offer to a French public the keys for understanding what has been going on in the United States from the 50s to the 70s in terms of communication in relationship to psychiatry, sociology, anthropology. Mm -hmm. The book went well, mm -hmm. got translated in different languages, and then, and it took me many years to uh, produce it, I decided to offer a second book which would be more my ethnographic approach, the way Bird Bissell had trained us to observe. And that second book is called The Anthropology of Communication. Uh, that is how you go about uh, observing face-to-face -face, uh, communication without cameras. I mean, that was the idea I wanted, a naturalistic approach. My latest book on reinventing museums is very much based on some capacity to always uh, retrieve materials ethnographically. That is, even though I told 12 stories which are just imaginary stories, they are fed with details of behavior uh, details of spatial arrangements, whatever you, you want to call them, which are 
I think the product of my training by, by Bird Whistle and indirectly by Irving Goffman. We started this conversation um, talking a little bit about the importance of empty spaces or the importance of taking mm -hmm. the time, the importance mm -hmm. of silence um, that goes into the importance of having museums mm -hmm. and um, reflection. Uh, so it's interesting how that goes for a circle. We did not get a chance to speak about some of your forthcoming projects. I believe you're writing about um, walking in urban spaces. Um, yeah, but, it is all kind of related. But that is related that. because yeah. I told you that I always wanted my student to go into town mm -hmm. and observe public behavior. People waiting for the bus. Mm -hmm. People yeah, walking on the sidewalk, bypassing each other. Signaling to the person ahead of them how they're going to bypass to the right or to the left. It's a complex choreography. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Even more so now because we are all holding uh, a smartphone in our hands. Mm -hmm. So we might be absorbed in that activity and we don't listen anymore mm -hmm. to the footsteps coming to your right or to your left. Mm -hmm. Or we don't even watch the people coming uh, and bang, almost ready to bang into you. There is a debate, because some people in my field of, let's say, communication didn't want to go beyond that threshold of pure science. You look at behavior, you describe it, that's it. Personally, I felt that we could jump over. That is, I observe and then I suggest ways of bettering, making the city better. Um, we've discussed education and the future um, a little, but maybe as you think about the future um, and uh, I guess the kind of uh, world uh, we're living the next generation, um, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? It, it happens that in recent years I have been more attuned to the very incredibly uh, urgent importance of ecological questions. Mm. It sounds like very fashionable today to... Uh, but I have a son who is 18. Uh, yeah, I had him late, but all right. And then I realized if I project him, uh, let's say, 40 or 50 years from now, he's going to suffer very badly from climate change, no matter what. I mean, it's probably going to be beyond two extra degrees, possibly three, if not four, within the next 60 years. Uh, and I wonder how uh, I can do something about it. I mean, yeah, sure, I can speak about it, but... I've, I sort of feel that my generation has been incredibly selfish in the sense that we had the best of both worlds. That is, I was born after the war and I never suffered from the restriction right after World War II. I was born late enough and I'm going to, to die within, you know, statistically, the next, let's say, 20 or at best 30 years. 
and I won't probably suffer from climate change. So I was just right there uh, at the good spot. But it is as if I just did nothing in order to try to make the world more habitable uh, to my son's generation. As if uh, we're telling him, tough luck, my son. Now uh, you are going to deal with flooded cities, uh, permanent storms, etc., mm-hmm. uh, etc. Et I mean, wh- or even you might wonder, maybe we will have the, the explanation about the um, uh, pandemia of coronavirus, and there might be some relationship with climate change. We just don't know right now, but it might well be connected. And there might be other uh, pandemia in the near future, especially when the permafrost in the Arctic is going to melt away and just get all those germs floating in the air. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, we can be very dramatic very quickly. But I have no answer. I mean, I realize that my only uh, answer has been to write papers about encouraging uh, people to walk in cities, to use, and in a sense, to contribute to a, to safer and healthier uh, cities. But I'm a tiny drop in the water. I haven't made, sure enough, and who has, a major contribution to, to, to that issue. So it's strange. I, I don't feel good about it, especially since I, I just don't know how to handle pragmatically, concretely, the, the situation. Sure, I can vote for an ecological party in Belgium. Uh, I can write petitions or you know, sign... But what next? Take a few planes, possibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, drop off all my plastic there, possibly. Mm-hmm. But it's so superficial, sort of. Museums will have to be subtle in their ways of conveying a new ecological awareness to a wider and wider population. It might also be that museums might be what is called a common house where things happen. That is where people congeneer, get together in order to discuss how do we take care of the floods or how do we take care of the fires which are surrounding our cities. I mean... Mm -hmm. um, in other words, it's, to me, museums might turn out to be the communal houses which are no lo- longer there, which used to be uh, very open in the 19th century in much smaller towns. Now in larger cities, we might be in need of places where people both scrutinize their past and try to make sense of their present in order to build up a plausible future. You know, mm-hmm. so that would mean that museums would end up with very societally important functions. <laughs>